Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with repeat guest Arnold Kling, uh, economist and author. Uh, Arnold, welcome back to the program. Great to be here. So, Arnold, let's start with a topic we've uh, we discussed briefly last time, but uh, it's been more in your mind recently. I, I had him on the show, Martin Gurry, uh, the revolt of the public, and what to do with with elites. What, what is the role of elites? Elites are discredited now. Do we need new elites? Do, does the concept of elites need to be rebranded or reoriented in this new age of of the public? Uh, I know you've been thinking about this topic for for some time. How do you make sense of it or, or trace the evolution in, in your thinking? Well, I think we've had a, a long period of declining trust and confidence in what would be sort of the current elites. And I mean, you can see that in polling data. If I had to guess, sort of peak confidence or peak trust in elites was about somewhere around 1960. You don't, wouldn't remember this, but uh, the Kennedy administration, you know, he was really shielded in a way no politician today could be shielded by the press. You know, he was, you know, having all sorts of affairs in the White House and, you know, the the press knew about it and the public did not. So, you know, if you go back to around 1960, you know, there are the three networks, there, you know, there's newspapers in every city, but they're really all kind of derivative of the main newspapers and, you know, mass media, uh, mass production, you know, manufacturing was a much bigger part of the economy. So it was, it was much easier for elites to sort of be in charge and f- to be legitimate. They, they could control the narrative much more. Again, you know, President Kennedy being an example, and they could get the perception across that they were legitimate and people thought that way. And of course, it's only 15 years after the end of the Second World War, which, you know, made Americans, you know, very uh, proud of themselves and of their elites and of their whole country. You had the rest of the world not yet recovered economically. So we were like, really the world's economic colossus. So again, there was just all these reasons for people to feel very confident in themselves and in their leaders, and that all fell off gradually and then suddenly, uh, more suddenly in the last 20 years because of the phenomena that Martin Gurry pointed out, the, uh, the way the internet has exposed the flaws in the elite and made it easy to organize protests. Although I saw an interesting article today linked by Tyler Cowen was the New York Times about the rate of failure of protests has gone way up over the last 20 years. Sort of people are starting more protests, but they're less focused, less well-organized, less well-prepared. And so they don't win as much, which would be a uh, something, another Martin Gurry type phenomenon. And, and so, you know, it, I mean, it's Obama seemed to be the, um, the pinnacle of, 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 of elites, you know, a true technocracy, you know, was it, people thought, hey, finally, we, we've got the smart people, reasonable people in charge, or, or that's what some, many people thought, and uh, it didn't work out expected to plan. 
there's a case where sort of people's expectations are just way out of line with reality. And, and that's often true with government. Uh, but, you know, you know, think of what happened with the uh, healthcare.gov website. I mean, any project executive at any tech firm could have seen that problem coming from a mile away that, you know, there really was no project executive in charge. Uh, and it was not being run like any kind of proper IT project, uh, had ridiculous requirements, uh, for basically connecting with IBM mainframes and then turning around instant answers. Uh, but nobody, nobody in charge at, at that kind of, uh, with, with the kind of experience and power that you need to do that. So another example of the failure of the elites would be that stimulus, uh, which, you know, they said, well, that's going to bring the unemployment rate down from 8% to, you know, something less. And instead, the unemployment rate goes up to 10%. So there's just a, um, a combination of elites sort of promising too much People's expect and not dampening down people's expectations for them, and then the public just getting increasingly informed, increasingly angry. And so, do you think going forward, do we get new elites? Do we get new, um, or do we disband the term elites as we um, as we commonly understand it, and just get something totally, totally different? I have a hard time picturing something without elites. Uh, the question is. It's very hard to see a path back to legitimacy for the current elites, you know, back to a state where people say, oh, yeah, they really, they really have a right to their power and, you know, they're exercising it properly. And that's a combination both of public cynicism and of uh, the failure of elites to earn public trust. I just, in the last 24 hours, uh, received an advanced copy. Unfortunately, I'm really mad that it won't be out till like but mid-January of Yuval Levin's latest book, which is an amazing book. It's called A Time to Build. And he argues very strenuously that we do need to rebuild what he calls institutions, but it also means, but institutions he sees as being run by elites. And he talks very much about the, well, that any power structure has to include institutional ethics so if you're going to be if you're going to have a powerful journalistic fraternity they're going to have to have strong journalistic ethics if you're going to you know if you work in the business world if the business does not have a clear mission sense of who it is what it will do what it won't do what the constraints are on its on what its leaders can do. If it doesn't have that kind of ethical foundation, it's probably going to be in big trouble. It needs that to win the support of consumers and to win the support of the workforce. It needs to stand for something, as, as people say. And what Yuval Levin points out, not using these words, is that a lot of these elites no longer stand for anything. They're just out, you know, the, the individuals are just out for their own gain and they don't say we have to protect our institution. These are our limits. Th- these are our behavioral constraints. So when you say 
bring back to the question of elites, I think elites will have to emerge probably in the context of some kind of institution that clearly gives them a mission and a set of ethical standards. Well, and it's interesting, you know, Martin Gurry talks about the, the crisis of authority, and, and we seem to have that, you know, across the board from our, our politicians, obviously, you know, our, our press, our companies, um, you know, Facebook, uh, and doing the hearing recently, that was, that was very interesting. And so in what areas are, are those elites going to manifest? Because it's, well, it's easier to win points by attacking people than it is to by, you know. Right. I, I think a, a question, this is a question that I have came to my mind if, at the end of reading Yuval Levin's book, is what's working? Can we see things that are working and say, well, there's an example where, you know, sort of elites could uh, could emerge from. I mean, if you look at you know trust in institutions right now, the, you get the military. I'm not convinced that the military is necessarily working, and I don't think that's you know the best example. But there probably are things that they're doing to instill a sense of ethics that are not being done in other aspects of life. But my guess is that there are. You know, there we can think of other successful things. Some charter schools appear to be very successful, for example, and that's you know that might be another arena in which somehow I think that the educational system in general and higher education isn't producing any more elites that people are confident in. It'll be if somebody can either reform higher education or replace it. Uh, that might generate a different, uh, that might generate the next generation of elites. Yeah. And another lens of looking at the, uh, sort of elites is your, your lens of, uh, of aligning knowledge and power that you talked about in, uh, in Unchecked. It's inter- interesting to think about how, you know, over time, the advance of technology has typically led into greater centralization of, of power. And only recently is there the hope. Um, that that decentralization um, or that technology can lead to a, a greater decentralization, even if it also centralizes in, in some example, you know, Facebook centralizes in some sense, um, you know, Zuckerberg has all this power, but also gives, you know, people a voice. He calls it the fifth estate, not, you know, social media yeah. gives people a voice. In a, in, a, in a world where if the decentralization trend really happens and things become more local, I wonder what that means for for elites. Do elites have lesser power than they have historically or is it much more meritocratic elites but what is a much more bottoms up world look like yeah i guess you know that's a you know an interesting scenario to try to look at i mean you can look at it from you know a science fiction point of view or maybe maybe you can come up with something more uh more concrete i think it's difficult there's i think a story in today's wall street journal about sort of a few People trying to re-decentralize the web. You know, Tim Berners-Lee is among them, and I'm sure I, I've heard before about these efforts to do that. It'll be interesting to see if any of them take off. I mean, I was around, you know, in the '90s. Uh, I was, you know, very active in the internet in those days. So I remember all the hopes for decentralization, and I'm still pretty disappointed that those hopes 
right now seem to be dashed, but I don't know the technology ones. I feel like I've been burned once on the decentralization issue. And I, I wonder if there's some inevitable, you know, like inevitable scaling issues with decentralized solutions. Yeah, putting the the web aside because I know you're uh, you're bearish on on crypto and and it, hey, it's still very very early. Uh, one thing you you did write about you know very early on is uh, is charter cities. The I just read the Sovereign Individual uh, and sort of it, you know it talks about how in the future and it it came out in like the '90s will will transform from citizens of of government to customers of government. And where I sit in Silicon Valley, the charter city movement is starting to to gain steam. Um, I, I have a few uh, colleagues who are going out on their own and, and trying to create these uh, these cities, and it's interesting to think about whether these, you know, it, let's say it takes off or in the next, you know, few decades, will it look like a thousand different, you know, Israel's and Singapore's and um, Hong Kong, you know, sort of highly local, highly uh, like-minded people. Or will it be, who knows, leads to even more centralization? Yeah. Well, I think the key question, and this goes back to the the you, the widely unread, unchecked, and unbalanced, which you seem to be one of the few people who've actually read. Uh, I think the key issue is can you unbundle things that are now bundled at a local government level? So uh, can you unbundle you know, education from garbage collection from various amenities and so on. I mean, right now, you know, if you said, you know, to select, your, Arnold, select your location based on government, I would not select Montgomery County, Maryland. I mean, I, I just think it, I joke that it's a wholly owned subsidiary of the teachers union. <laughs> and in fact, I think that the teachers unions in the state of Maryland are proposing a 45% increase in the already bloated education budget. And if, if they get a, another, you know, a democratic governor, they'll probably get that anyway. So I wouldn't choose it for its government, but I wouldn't leave it right now because it has other amenities that, uh, that I'm t- very tr- attached to. So the key, again, the key is unbundling. You can get, I think, to this decentralized system if you can unbundle. I'm skeptical that you can start up a city or a seastead from scratch because there are just so many things that people care about and want in the immediate vicinity that you know you, it's just it's just very hard to get those from from just starting from ground zero. And let's say you could, maybe this is 20 years from now, maybe this is 50 years from now. Uh, well, I'm curious, and this goes into a little bit of a segue into Nature Nurture. I know you've been reading uh, mm-hmm. Gavin Mitchell's book, Innate. Do you suspect that people would segment uh, into like-minded groups in very small city-states or that people would congeal in, in very big? I think part of the unbundling process will have to include a lot stronger a lot stronger capabilities of virtuality. So if I can live in my neighborhood and be governed by Singapore, uh, that would be a virtual, you know, virtuality. Or if I can, you know, live here and feel like I'm dancing in LA, you know, with a group in LA, that would be a, you know, a real virtual reality win. In America, you know, last hundred years, we have this amazing story of integration among, you know, different, different peoples. And in the future, 
where we are you know, customers of, go- of governments rather than citizens, and we, and we choose where we want to live and have more options. Do you think we will, you know, come together in smaller groups of like 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 minded people, or will we like, and there won't be as much integration or, or diversity, or, or what do you think that could look like? Well, cities seem to be very popular. Uh, so I, I don't think people are quite that like-minded, you know, sort of, uh, I may like people who like baseball, but pe- there are pe- other, my friends who like baseball may have different, uh, occupational preferences than I do. And the, and the people who have different occupational preferences may want different school systems, different family environments. And so that's kind of what makes a city is you sort of get, uh, you have enough amenities to attract you know, a lot of people and it's a variety of amenities. So I, I think, you know, again, I think you can imagine a virtual reality scenario where some of the associations that you want to make, you can make, you know, like we're making now uh, at very long distance and then the ones that, and so the only ones that are location based are ones that that don't lend themselves to virtual reality. But I, that's you know, I don't know what the progress will be on that. What do you think in a world where we are customers of government rather than citizens, and we all you know self segment? What happens to poor people? Do you think like who subsidizes them? Well, you know, we once had a world where local charities did that. And, you know, in some ways that was better. That gave people a sense of purpose in working for local charities. And so part of the, part of that went away. I think, uh, I, I think it's possible that things could work better, uh, in that environment. Uh, you know, maybe we need some kind of, you know, national government. Of course, I, you know, I, I'm one of the, few people on the East Coast who thinks that a uh, universal basic income is not a bad idea, uh, but I would want to have it be on the small side and as a replacement for existing programs like you know, food stamps and so on. So if you had this, you know, a national government with that collected enough money to provide a universal basic income, it would not be a a basic income that would be enough to allow people not to work, but it would be a basic income that would get be enough so that charities could fill in the remainder because different, you know, poor people is not just a uniform concept. Different people have different needs. Some people, you know, might need something for a short term. Some people might need a small supplement. Some people might have, you know, a very badly disabled child that they, that needs a lot of services. And so they would need a lot, a lot of stuff from charity. Right. Right. And yeah, it was, it was my understanding that I could be wrong here, that there's sort of charity, this pressure to uh, do things like universal basic income so that the uh, lower class doesn't get restless and, and revolt basically. Yeah. That's not my rationale. My rationale is that it's just way better than the system we have for uh, lowering the implicit marginal tax rate on the uh, on the poor and the working poor because you know right now if you keep losing benefits with very sharp cutoffs as your income rises above the poverty level in a way it makes it very hard to escape poverty you know sort of you know, why should a woman marry a 
a working man, if all he's going to do is give them just enough income so that they lose their food stamps and their housing subsidies, it uh, it, it really kind of creates a poverty trap. Right. No, I, I, yeah, I get why it's better than what we have now. I guess I'm just curious, and maybe this is too far away, but in a world where you know there's a thousand Israels or or you know people just sort of self segment, you know, create join the cities that they want, just like they get the iPhone, the, the phone that they want. Why there would be any incentive to let poor people in their country, basically? Yeah, no, that that's uh, that's something that people have worried about for uh, decades, really. I think Robert Reich, the uh, Clinton era labor secretary he called it secession that 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 you know wealthy people would have the option to basically secede from other societies <laughs> so i mean the good news is that you know secession gives people a lot of choice the bad news is that uh there may be some people who you know the like you say the wealthy people want to secede away from so much that uh you know what where do they you know where do they integrate with? Uh, do they become some weird underclass? Again, this becomes sort of science fiction scenarios. Um, you know, one of my favorite science fiction predictions is the Diamond Age. Uh, I assume you're familiar with that or no? No, no, no. Uh, uh, say more. Uh, okay, so the Diamond Age is uh, Neil Stevenson, of course. And in it, they... Uh, among the classes, the, the, like a couple of the main classes in society are called. One is called the Vickies, or short for Victorians, and they consume handmade goods and sort of uh, <laughs> personalized movies and so on. And the lower class is called the Thetes, and they, because of the you know miracles of nanotechnology, can get any any. Uh, manufactured good they want at basically no cost, but they can't do much productive work. So they just kind of sit around and consume, you know, th th they have a, a nice consumption basket, but they don't have what would seem like very fulfilling lives. And that's a scenario that I think becomes plausible with, you know, a more efficient society. You can think of Perhaps what's going on right now in the United States is a little bit of the people on the coast be sort of acting the role of the Vickies and the people in the you know in the more depressed areas of the country acting the part of the Thetes and they're you know not just economically depressed but emotionally depressed as well. Totally, I'll have to check out more of uh, more Neil Stevenson. Is the uh, I want to segue to you've been thinking a bit about nature versus nurture you've been reading innate. I, I've been curious about that in the context of uh, obviously micro, but also macro. You know, I just read Peter Zahan's book, uh, Accidental Superpower, and he he analyzes sort of geopolitics from a demographics, geographical, and um, you know, energy and environment perspective, and says nothing about culture. Totally ignores uh, ignores culture. So, so I'm curious how, how you've been thinking about it, and well, that's a, an interesting juxtaposition there. I wouldn't have wouldn't have even made that one. Uh, yeah, I guess Zihan is very much a materialist in that sense. Or he, uh, I, I read one of his books. I don't. I, I remember in, uh, paying a lot of attention to it at the time, but uh, I guess a lot of it has slipped away from me. Uh, I guess what I mostly took away from it was that. 
you know, now that now that there's fracking, the U.S. has no interest at all in the Middle East, and he predicted we would just abandon the Middle East to its to its struggles. So, you know, Trump getting out of Syria would be like you know exactly what what he would have predicted under any president. So, what we're juxtaposing here is nature, nurture, culture, and materialism. I guess. Mm-hmm. Well, I I think. Culture matters a ton. You know that's how, that's sort of what makes the human species distinct. I think when you take culture as given, you know, nature starts to account for a lot of differences across people in terms of outcomes. That's of any help. Has China had a revolt of the public yet? How do you think about China in this context? I definitely am not an expert on China. Uh, you could look at the Hong Kong protests as kind of what would happen in China if there were a revolt of the public, or how could a revolt of the public take place in China? And at this point, I don't think we know the outcomes of the outcome of those protests. Does China establish authority through legitimacy? Does it sort of come to terms with the protesters? Does it establish authority through you know, just repression combined with surveillance. I don't, I don't know how that how that plays out. Or does it lose its authority? You know, do the do the protests spread and and the elite has to give way? I, you know, we we look at like the fall of the Soviet Union now as if it was deterministic. You know, who knows if Gorbachev had played his cards differently? Maybe he could have held power. You know, so. Uh, right. So I, I think it's hard hard to be even confident about uh, what happened in the past, much less about what's going to happen in the future. Yeah, it's it's interesting how, how you respond to sort of the public. Do you, you know, China is yeah the repression side <laughs> that say you establish credibility, and uh, I guess Martin is 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 encouraging more of a a new elite that spe- that better speaks to the public, but still represents you know decency and reasonableness, like you know liberal democracy, basically. Yeah, well, I mean, that's, you know, one scenario is that you get elites who are able to ma- to realign expectations with reality. Because right now, the expectations, you know, what people think government leaders ought to be like and ought to do is very disconnect, you know, is, is way above what they're actually doing, their actual behavior. And as long as that disconnect is there, you're going to have the revolt of the public. Uh, so some of that has to be low, elites lowering expectations, and that seems to be very uncomfortable for them to say, you know, we may not be able to solve this problem. We're humble. We're going to have to delegate some power downward because we're not sure that we can control it. That that would seem to be the most, you know, consistent path or the, the the path that's most that I can see is most likely to succeed for the elites to retain power, but they don't see it that way. It, it is interesting to think about whether, you know, I think, I think this NBA China example, interesting uh, analogy here, you know, do you deal like if the Republic, if the public that's revolting is sort of like a child or a teenager, do you discipline them? And that's what you know, China's done to the NBA basically. 
or do you you know try to reason with them and and hope that they you know see see your side and i i think you know the nba is an example where it, it didn't work out super well where they sort of acquiesced to to china but you know criticized in, internally um in a way that seems inconsistent and i wonder if that same um sort of set of decisions will face you know organizations far bigger and more important than the nba probably it will i think that yeah that's going to be a key question going forward is how do you get adjustment to elites losing some of their legitimacy do they take a step forward toward the public to recover legitimacy or do they take a step backward uh, toward repression and then how does the public react do they you know are the, does repression work does it not who gets intimidated who doesn't those are those are all tough questions yeah bring it back to Zayhan for a second because he, he says that ignoring you know culture completely that china is likely to collapse on itself because of demographics reasons mostly but we give some others but, but you know the one the one child policy consequences coming home to roost yeah that that will be very interesting to see how that plays out because there's going to be such heavy dependency among older Chinese. Now, I guess, you know, Chinese have a high savings rate. Maybe that that pulls them through that. But, you know, in general, you know, older societies are not very aggressive. You know, so here we have this picture of China as this, you know, aggressive, on-the-move, you know, potential superpower. And you know, maybe there are enough young people, you know, maybe the proportion of young it's, it's interesting whether question whether it's the proportion of young people or the absolute number of young people that matters. Maybe if there there's a large absolute number of young people, they will be an aggressive, uh, ambitious country. But if it's the proportion of young people, you'd expect them to not to be very ambitious at all, because totally. that proportion of young people is going to be low. But, but before I transition uh, off this, what, what, what's uh, your main takeaway from Kevin Mitchell's book, uh, Innate, or, or why are you excited about Nature and Nurture right now? I, I say I can describe some of that book in two bumper stickers. And that's, I mean, I actually wrote a very long review of it, so it's a lot more than two bumper stickers. But one bumper sticker is Gestation Matters. He makes the point that you can use twin studies to try to differentiate you know, genetics and environment, you can say, well, you know, if, if two identical twins differ, the presumption is that they differ because of the environment. But in fact, a lot of the differences may take place in between conception and birth. And so that gets this bumper sticker, Gestation Matters. And then the title of his book is Innate. His point is, even if there's variation in how kind of the makeup of the brain in particular, you know, it, it can vary depending on what happens during gestation. So he says, you know, if you were cloned a hundred times, you would actually have a hundred different personalities. They, they would be, you know, fairly closely related because of genes, but they would be different because during the process of gestation, you know, different cells mutate slightly differently or go to different places in the brain. But the title's innate because by the time you're born, those things are determined. So it could be that things that we assume we can attribute to the uh, environment after, after you're born actually 
that that some of that variation really happened before you were you were born, in between conception and birth. So that's what the innate story is. Um, and the other bumper sticker I have, so that's the bumper sticker, Gestation Matters. The other bumper sticker is that humanity is a set of mental disorders. Uh, because he makes the point that nobody survives the either the, the process of acquiring your genes in the first place or these processes of cell mutation in the brain, you know, during development. And I'm not a great biologist, so I, I, I can just say that, you know, this macro process of gestation introduces errors. Well, the process of getting, you know, inheriting genes introduces some errors. We, we, we will have some kind of, you know, often we'll have, we'll have mutations of some sort, and, and he argues that a typical mutation is adverse. Otherwise, it would have been selected for a long time ago. And, you know, we get, get a few mutated cells during the gestation process. So overall, our brains include a lot of adverse characteristics. And so then my line is that we're kind of a set of mental disorders. So, you know, some of those adverse characteristics become recognizable clinical problems like schizophrenia or epilepsy. Uh, but most most of them don't become get labeled with a clinical diagnosis, but there's still some imperfections anyway. So humanity is a set of mental disorders. Uh, that's a couple bumper stickers. There's a lot of interesting stuff in that book. Another piece you are you are working on right now. You make the case that the Nobel Prize should be given to uh, Edward Lemer. Uh, unpack that for us. Okay, so Lemer is. I guess he's probably now in his 70s. He began doing studies of international trade. He also was trained in what's called econometrics, the statistical methods used by economists. And he was trained to appreciate what's called Bayesianism, which is a belief that you approach the problem of statistical inference by saying, all right, I start out with a probability distribution of what I'm studying. Let's say I'm studying the elasticity of demand for labor, and I say that, well, my prior is that it's low, it's 0.5, so I don't think it's very elastic. <laughs> and then I do a study, and I observe some data, and that moves me one direction or the other, um, you know, what, what I think that parameter is. He's think, so he thought very hard about the methods that actually get used in economic research. And what he noticed uh, is that all of the theory and all of the computer algorithms assume that their data come from an experiment. But especially at the time he's writing, in the late 70s and early 80s, almost all the data economists used were data that they, dis that they found. It's called, these are called observational studies. Uh, they did not generate the data by conducting an experiment. So they're getting these computer printouts that show confidence intervals and significance levels, that is the statistics that you use to make inferences about your results. 
computed as if they came from an experiment, but they actually come from these observational studies. Moreover, when economists encounter this data, uh, they're not really certain what to do with it. So they run a regression. They get results that are kind of weird, not what they're expecting. So they try a different regression and then a different one with, with different constraints, different assumptions. And literally, they would do hundreds of these. And by the time you'd use the data a hundred times, uh, all of the theory that the computer printouts are assuming is behind this uh, is out the window. And so in 1978, he writes a book called Specification Searches, which is what this process is of people coming up with different specifications for these regressions that they're running. And the subtitle is uh, Ad Hoc Inference with Non-Experimental Data. And so he suggests ways you could correct your statistical inferences for it. His suggestions fell on deaf ears. Then in 1982 or 83, he publishes a paper called Let's Take the Con Out of the Conmetrics. And that hit the profession over the head with a hammer and said, look, you're running, you know, dozens of regressions on the same data that completely undermines your reporting of confidence intervals and significance levels, the things that, that you know, people care about and things that uh, get you published are just completely bogus because of the way you arri arrived at it. The profession had been vaguely aware of that, and so the theorists, theoreticians would say, well, don't do not do that. Don't run so many regressions. That's bad. Lemur says, no, you have to do that. We're, he calls this Sherlock Holmes inference, that you, you have to learn from the data, just the way Sherlock Holmes has to learn from observing the facts. He doesn't just form a theory without, without observing. He does a lot of observing. And he, Lemur says, you have to do that. But what you have to do is report differently. And that paper shook the profession to its roots. Before that paper was written, you could get a paper published with a multiple regression in any top journal. A few years later, those kinds of papers disappeared. What came instead were attempts not really to handle the problem the way Lemur suggested, but to get around the problem by finding things like natural experiments. So before Lemur, if you wanted to, to say, you know, are charter schools better than public schools, you would have run a regression where the dependent variable was outcomes on test scores, and you tried to put in independent variables to control for the the quality of the students, because there's a suspicion that different students go to charter schools than public schools, and you want to control for that. So you start putting in variables related to their parents' income, the parents' education, what have you. So that was the old way of doing things, and Lemur discredited the inferences that you could draw from that. The new way, which isn't what Lemur proposed, but which is what the profession came to, was to look for something a way that the uh, some data that would 
create what's called a natural experiment. So in the case of the charter school, public school, some charter schools have lotteries that let you in or don't let you in. And you look at only the students who were in those lotteries, the ones who won the lottery and got to go to the charter school and the ones that didn't win the lottery and ended up in the public school. If you can buy the assumption that those are basically similar students, the only difference being the ones who won versus the ones who lost the lottery, then if you restrict your comparison to those students, then you don't have to worry about differences in their parents and so on. And so you have a clean comparison of their test scores. So that method of quasi-experiments took over. In fact, there was an article and, in fact, an entire book Call on the by very well known economists called the credibility revolution in economics. So Lemer basically hit the profession over the head and said that your way of doing empirical research doesn't work, and the profession subsequently reacted by changing the way it did its work. And uh, about half of the met, some company called the Clark Medal, which goes to the best young economists under 40, about half of those have gone to people who've used these new research methods uh, in the period since Lemur's critique was absorbed. So it's just a a very powerful influence. You can relate what he did in some ways to subsequent ways of sort of debunking statistical methods, you know, the the replication crisis in psychology, for example. So just a very important, uh, I think a very important contribution, even though it was in some ways negative, the saying, you know, your stuff, the way you've been doing things is wrong. I, I want that to segue into uh, a conversation we, we had last time but want to build upon here, which is uh, your personal moonshot, which I uh, can't remember the exact phrasing you had. I, I sort of took it as either, you know, either economics 2.0 or 3.0 or redefining economics or or sort of, Making it yeah. great again. <laughs> yeah, no, I have a lot of things, math issues there. The, the, the phrase is overthrow neoclassical economics. Yeah, I, I think that the, there are a couple of things that are sort of related. One is that economics is too materialistic. You know, the role of ideas and culture is just uh, is large, and it's just kind of a, left as a residual. It's not. In, in economics, they, they, they act as if everything is determined by material resources. And the other thing is it's too mathematical. And what the math does is it, and what it glorifies is, is simplifying and trying to take things that have very complex causal structures and reduce them to, you know, one or two causal variables. And that, um, I, I think that's very misleading. You know, something like the financial crisis of 2008, um, you know, there are probably 30 or 40 plausible causal variables and all sorts of uh, feedback loops and so on. But economists tend to look at them one at a time because of the that's what a mathematical model is conducive to. And that's that's unfortunate. So. And I'll just say, you know, neoclassical economics in particular has this mission of reducing everything to a production function where you say there's this labor and there's capital. 
and you know there's a a wage rate and a return on capital and that's how income is determined and so on and you know in the real world it's very it's much messier than that there are you know many different types of labor going from you know uh highly professionalized highly scarce labor to people just uh washing dishes at the back of a restaurant and the the term capital has to become very elastic as you talk about human capital social capital there are probably you know, all sorts of variations on that and in the end the analysis that tries to write down a production function with only a couple of factors ends up obscuring more than what it uh, what it clarifies so you end up engaging in self deception uh, anytime you read a, a discussion in which people talk about well productivity growth slowed down between 2000 and 2010 or what or any pick your time period that's all based on garbage i mean the the data are just not refined enough to tell you anything like that. The definition of productivity is actually not very clear at all, given that there are different types of labor. What do you, which, what are you talking The productivity of what? The average worker, if you average in a, uh, you know, a uh, brain surgeon and a dishwasher, and you talk about what they, you know, what their productivity is. So anyway, that's that's my rant on uh, neoclassical economics. So what um, what replaces it? Uh, I, I think a, a much more disaggregated view of the economy. I think you have to be willing to to try to disaggregate it. You know, slice it on on several dimensions. Uh, a little bit by industry, a little bit by occupation, uh, a little bit by geography, and you know, be willing to accept that there's there's a lot of uh, divergence, and I, I think the most interesting empirical work that I see tends to be along those lines. That it you know looks at let's say different types of businesses. So a startup that's trying to you know eventually become a uh, unicorn or a public company is very different than a family that opens a restaurant, uh, even though they'll both be called startups. And even, yeah, but in economics, they don't even, conventional economics, they don't even care about whether a company is a startup or an established business or a big company or a small company. They just build this, they just write this mathematical representation of any business. And that's, to me, that's crazy. There are very different types of businesses, uh, and you can make predictions of them. I'm, when Facebook announced Libra, I predicted that the project would not get off the ground because of all the large established companies involved in it. And large established companies don't get involved in projects because they want to get them going. They get involved in them because... They want to make sure that they're not left out in the off chance that the project gets going. But they're going to, you know, my view is that now that Facebook has lost some of the partners that it had, 
it probably I would say the probability of Libra getting off the ground is now higher because you can't you, you can't get large legacy businesses to cooperate in an innovation like that. It just it just doesn't happen. But you know that type of observation is not something that an economist typically would make because they don't you know they just have this mathematical model of a farm. How will we know when the economics profession is is on the right track? I was going to say track again. I'm not sure it was. Um, I think when they can describe the real world of business and not not have these mathematical abstractions that don't offer insights or even misleading about how business works. So, you know, I don't think it's an accident that one of the economists who winds up important in business, Hal Varian at Google, before he goes to Google, he and Carl Shapiro write a book about how a business in the you know that's dealing in information goods has to operate you know and how it has to find a way to cover its fixed costs given that its marginal costs and the marginal costs of distribution are close to zero you know he identifies a, an important problem by that exists for certain classes of businesses and he and he and his co-author write a book about that and that's the type of ec- economics that more economists need to do is understand the real world, just to put it bluntly. And is it a little bit of, you know, there's this line of like, if you're so smart, why aren't you rich? And not to say that all economists want to be rich, but for the ones that want to, dis- you know, be able to predict or describe the real world, like, will it have more um, closeness to, to that? Will that be true? Yeah, I don't think the test is that they get rich. The test is they can they're conversant with how businesses operate and with how with the problems that exist that businesses actually face in the real world. You know, the business is not solving a calc a problem of dynamic calculus. The business is solving a problem of you know in the in his in a world of lots of unknowns. What kind of tentative steps do we take in certain directions to try to improve? What kind of trial and error operations do we make? How do we coordinate our people within the company to to work constructively? How do we you know, deal with all sorts of strategic issues? And these strategic issues have become increasingly important in the Internet age. I mean, you know, Facebook is not, problem isn't, you know, how do I produce most efficiently, right? It's, it's got, it's, all of its problems are, are strategic problems. Yeah. I've heard two critiques that are, that are related. One is that uh, economics treats people as though they are atomistic individuals. And this is the second plate, which is, you know, it assumes that, public goods slash increasing returns uh, or what non-economists might call the social is a negligible part of value, i.e. doesn't take into account sort of the, the public good enough, I guess, or, or that, you know, the Obama, old Obama line of you didn't build that, or maybe, you yeah. know, more help building that than the private property acknowledges. Yeah, I'd say that those are legitimate criticisms, but they're not the most important ones. And, and I mean, what I'm afraid is people will just say, well, let's take the existing model and I'll add in 
oh, a little bit of human irrationality or externalities or a little bit of this or a little bit of that. And I think instead you have to say, wow, things are just way more complex than you can write down with those simple mathematical models. And you have to kind of do your best to sort out. So I've said that, you know, some of the problems that economists should be looking at is just ones of classification, you know, classify different types of businesses and the different problems that they face. So a startup faces a different problem. A family business faces a different problem. A manufacturing firm faces a different problem than the, you know, an internet company. And uh, just you know, start out, start from the way what you observe in the world, and then work your way back to analysis, rather than saying, "All right, what what's the simplest mathematical model I can." put together to solve a particular problem. I wonder if this brings you closer to the uh, Austrian school, maybe not in conclusions, uh, but in, in methodology. I think they have, uh, I can't remember which one is inductive versus deductive. I, I think it, yeah, they, they read it from first principles or they try to, and then, and then work backwards from there. Yeah. I'd say a, a difference is I think that I would, sh- I would endorse the Austrian economics view of, <laughs> that markets are solving complex dynamic problems that a single observer, be that a government official or the economist, can't fully grasp. You know, in some sense, the collective wisdom that's embedded in a market is greater than the wisdom of any individual participant in it, including a government official or an economist. So that, in that sense, uh, I endorse Austrian economics. I don't, I definitely don't buy sort of this a priori, you know, we can infer everything by thinking about what a human agent would do, uh, which is sometimes implied in Austrian economics. So honestly, I don't know how much my views overlap with Austrian economics because I'm not well read in the classics in Austrian economics. So, you know, somebody could listen to everything I say and say, hey, it's all in Mises. And I'd say, oh, really? Okay, I didn't know that. Right. I think there are some people who think that, you know, there, there are two types of propositions. There's stuff that's in Mises and there's stuff that's that's false. That kind of all out, you know, Austrian economics is everything I, I don't think I would buy into. Right. You know, we talked about in the last podcast and you, you, you talked about elsewhere how uh, you know, you're fairly conservative in nature in the sense of, or I should say, you know, more on the tradition side than on the reason side that traditions have a lot of, uh, you know, value to them, a lot of, a lot of, a lot of wisdom to them. And, you know, that's a, sort of a broad, you know, dichotomy, but in, in, in this uh, economics it seems that you're more, you know, willing to reconsider some from for first principles. And I, I guess what what is it helpful to look at sort of you know the field of economics as like a social technology? And when we think about technology progress, conservatism doesn't really make sense. In like we're always trying to get better and improve and 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 rethink and tinker. I, I, how do you think about what falls in the fields of hey, d- don't necessarily tinker with that. That's not a technology. Versus this is a technology. This is something we can get better, improve. Talking about economics, can, you know, how does it 
can't improve, can't get worse, whatever. Yeah, yeah, right. and, and your fear of of over tinkering, like yeah, where that applies. Where that applies. Um, yeah. So what what do I think? I I've, I guess I think economics and other disciplines can go through fads, and they're they're kind of bad. You know, you can get bad fads. There's a discipline at work in the business world where, yeah, you can have fads that are supported by investors for a period of time, but eventually if they really are dumb fads, then the investors lose money and they uh, they go away. I mean, look at all the online pet stores of the internet bubble era. So there's a, there's a discipline there that doesn't quite exist in the academic world. Bad ideas don't uh, fall by the wayside so automatically. And I think uh, in economics, the, a lot of bad ideas kind of crept in in the 40s and 50s, and some even worse ideas crept in in the 70s, and maybe the 80s. Maybe things are getting a bit better now, but we're still... It t- really takes a long time to change. Uh, what's the? Was it? Uh, I forget which physicist said that you know s- science progresses one funeral at a time, and there haven't been enough funerals yet in economics to uh, to produce enough pro- to produce the kind of progress that uh, I think might be possible. Yeah, one thing I wanted to segue into is you. Um you wrote uh, a, a few other books, w- one of which was, uh, was on healthcare. Uh, the other was on the, uh, what caused the, the financial crisis. And these are both o- over a decade ago. Were, are these sort of systemic problems that led to the, the crisis? And, and you sort of, uh, you know, articulated them as sort of the discrepancy between knowledge and power, which, which by the way, I, I noticed some parallels in, in venture capital or you use that, that phrase. Do those problems uh, still exist? Has knowledge and power been better aligned, or are we basically in the same state we were in a decade ago in terms of uh, you know potential systemic risk? To the extent that we would, I would tell a knowledge and power story, I would say we are in the exact same position. In some ways, worse. Worse because the largest financial institutions now have like. Half, you know, let's say the six largest institutions might have half the financial assets. I mean, uh, that's sort of ballpark. Uh, Whereas even before the crisis, they had quite a bit less. And then 20 years before the crisis, it was trivial. They they, they had only a a tiny percentage of all the financial assets. So it's got this great concentration. Um, So, you know, that just invites uh, real points of failure. Yeah, if there are some bad ideas at Goldman Sachs or Citicorp and they pr- pursue them, uh, you know they they can destroy a ton of wealth. Whereas you know twenty years ago, thirty years ago, they couldn't. So in that sense, it's worse. I think it's you know, that that system looks more fragile just from that perspective. And you know, regulators still don't have anywhere near the knowledge they do to to have the burden that they have. The burden on the regulators is supposedly to make it make the system perfectly safe. You know, you're supposed to have, you know, uh, macro prudential policies, the financial stability councils and all these, you know, all, all this 
you know, the Fed and its related agencies are now supposed to be, you know, omniscient on the financial system. And they can't be. Uh, there, there are all sorts of parts of the financial system that they can't possibly understand. I mean, uh, I don't think anyone can put a handle on like all the derivative trading, all the international currency swaps. No one really understands, can, can possibly understand all, all of what's going on there. So that's the sense in which there's this. And yet these regulators you know, have, have tremendous power. Uh, so that's the sense in which the knowledge power discrepancy is still there. And is, is the proposal to get rid of the the regulators or, 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 or significantly mitigate them or, or what, what's the right level of regulation over the, you know, it's, uh, well, it, it's not, it's not easy to say in terms of level. It, I think in terms of, you know, my solution in finance is, you know, make it easy to fix, not tr don't try to make it hard to break. Cause if you try to make it hard to break, you're going to miss something and then it will break. And then you got nothing. I say look for ways to make the system easier to fix. I think you know, easy to fix in finance is generally when you have less indebtedness because debt tends to cast you know debt failures tend to cascade through the economy. So things like the tax advantage of using debt finance uh, are bad ideas. We should try to have a tax system that, uh, if anything, encourages equity finance rather than debt finance. And I think that would in turn create a financial system that's easier to fix. So I, I just I don't think there's a regulatory solution to stabilizing the financial sector. The best hope is to make is to think in terms of policies and approaches that would make it easy to fix. Do you still think that the role here is to, or the role of uh, finance is to, um, how did you describe it? Something to do with people who want risk versus people who yeah, want the, Right. So the, the typical individual would love to issue risky liabilities, risky long-term liabilities and hold riskless short-term assets. So, you know, if you, if you want to start a fruit orchard, you would love to issue shares in that in that fruit orchard. So very risky long-term liabilities. Uh, but the the public would rather hold, you know, if they if they had their choice, rather than holding shares in your fruit fruit orchard, they'd like to hold bank deposits. So the intermediary kind of take, steps in and says, "Okay, well, we'll take something." some security in the fruit orchard, probably a long-term debt security, not equity, and then and we'll issue the kind of uh, perfectly liquid bank deposit that the public wants. So that, that's kind of what intermediation takes the, is willing, the financial intermediary is willing to uh, hold the, hold somewhat riskier uh, assets and issue somewhat less risky liabilities that uh, that pleases the public, uh, or the, 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 or certainly the next layer. There are sort of many layers of financial intermediation. Uh, you, you mentioned debt earlier. How should we think about sort of looming uh, national debt, sort of budget deficit as it relates to that? It, it seems that it's something that we Americans just sort of you know like like to ignore. Do we have that luxury, or or 
How should we? I, I think the best way to think about our national debt is that it will be politically corrosive. Politically, it's always easier if politicians can can be sort of giving things to people. So, you know, have let's have more Medicare benefits. Let's have more Social Security benefits. Let's have more tax cuts. <laughs> so the more people you can give stuff to, the, be- the, the, the less conflict there is. In a, a, a different world, they, they're taking things away from people. They're saying, ooh, maybe we can't really pay off these debts, so we're going to give people haircuts. Uh, maybe we can't really give you as much Social Security benefits as we promised, so we're going to have to cut back. That's politically corrosive. So when you run up a b- big debts and big unfunded liabilities, which is the real problem, it's not so much the debt that we have now, it's the liabilities that we haven't prepared for, that is the future Medicare costs, future Social Security costs that we don't have the budget for. What that's going to create down the road is conflict, and the conflict will become really acute if investors start to wonder where the money is going to come from to pay for all these things. So right now, investors just love government debt of all sorts, including and especially American government debt. And so that makes the interest rates low, and that makes the deficits relatively painless. If interest rates were to go up, if there was any kind of loss of confidence that would make the debt much more burdensome. And that in turn would make it the situation look much more dire and investors would say, oh, wait a minute, they can't afford 5% interest rates. I'm worried I'm going to charge them 10%. And it, you can get that kind of a vicious spiral. So even on a sort of a, a benign path, you get this corrosive effect that sooner or later – you have to stop giving more stuff to people and you have to start taking it away. And that makes for ugly politics. But in a worst case scenario, if investors lose confidence in a self-reinforcing way, uh, you get a sudden and very unexpected collapse in government finances. Uh, and this has happened in other countries many times. It hasn't happened in the U.S. Uh, you could argue something close to it happened around 1972 or 1970-71. But that loss of confidence that comes self-reinforcing just creates this sudden crisis where all of a sudden yesterday you didn't have to do a thing about the deficit. Today, if you don't drastically cut spending, drastically raise taxes or do something drastic, your ability to pay your bills just disappears. Right. And how should people make sense of, of negative interest rates right now? I don't think they make sense at all. I mean, there must be some... We, we are in a very weird world where uh, governments around the world are allocating a lot of capital through regulation. So, you know, as an individual, if you told me, you know, the only way... You can invest money, you can invest safely in treasury bills is to take a negative interest rate. I'd say, fine, I'll just put my money in the mattress you know, or put it in a safe deposit box. 
at least there it won't lose I won't have negative interest. So you gotta ask yourself who is paying a negative interest rate? Who's paying the government to store assets for you? And it must be somebody who can't hold it as cash. Presume I would presume that that's a financial institution that is required to show some a certain amount of government debt on its balance sheet for regulatory purposes. So they're basically being sold, told, ordered to finance part of Germany's debt or England's debt as a price for admission into the banking system. And so, in effect, these negative interest rates are a tax on certain types of financial institutions. I guess that's the way, the best way I can make sense of them. They're, they're a tax on financial institutions that are basically ordered to hold a certain amount of their portfolio as government debt. The venture community, the venture capital community right now is is very concerned about a potential correction in the next year or two. And then that is a, the negative interest rates is a signal. I think Peter Thiel said that it implies that companies don't have anywhere to put their money or like they don't, they don't know what to do with it. Um, is speculating about potential corrections is that a prudent thing to do? Is that a fraught thing to do? Is that a... Yeah, I, I think there's there's some legitimate worry. The question, yeah, you know, is sort of why, you know, you don't have to, it's like you don't just face a binary choice by treasury bills or invest in a wild startup. You know, there are presumably pretty safe things to invest in, you know, sort of a, a utility that's building another, it, that's, you know, upgrading its infrastructure or something like that. And, you know, that's, again, a case of, you know, you have to look at the economy in a very disaggregated way. We, we always talk about the interest rate, but there clearly are multiple interest rates. Interest rates aren't negative for everybody. Uh, they're very positive for people who are trying to borrow for risky projects. And I guess even for relatively low-risk projects, they, that, that's, that's a different market segment also. Yeah. And you also wrote uh, this book uh, about healthcare, uh, the, the crisis. This was over a decade ago, and I think you wrote recently that not much has changed. And you know, it was the sort of main critique, you know, you had this one analogy of imagine if there was eating insurance where you went to the restaurant and the restaurant, you, you didn't see how much it cost and the restaurant you know, decided perhaps what you should eat. Does that critique still hold today? And, and it was the problem basically that they tried too much to fix it. You know, too, or their incentives are to, to do something because that's where they get paid, even though that might not get you better. In fact, it might make you worse. Okay. So the, let me step back a little bit. So there, there's this basic issue in healthcare policy that, what we want as individuals is unlimited access to medical services without having to pay for them. But clearly, collectively, that that's going to mean the cost is very high. If you tell me, you know, you're not going to ration me at all, but I can get any medical service that I think I need, and I won't have to pay for it as an individual, then I'll just, you know, get any discretion, you know, if I, you know, 
if my toenails bothering me, I might go for an MRI. You know, it's um, there's sort of there, there's there's no limits. There's no questioning about spending, and I don't I don't question what it costs. I don't question whether it whether it's cost effective or anything. So. You know, if if you don't want, and that's kind of the system that we have, you know, with so many people having insurance of some sort, and insurance companies under a lot of pressure to approve just about anything that seems to have therapeutic value. That's kind of the system we have, and so we then we turn around and say, oh, the costs are out of control. We spend so much more than other countries on healthcare, and that's absolutely true. Like Medicare alone. I think if it were a country, it would be the highest health spending country in the world. You know, even though we have, you know, Medicare doesn't clearly doesn't uh, cover the majority of people. So there are two directions you can go if you want to bring U.S. healthcare spending down uh, more in line with other countries. One direction is rational. That is, you have some experts, the death panels that were abolished, probably the only sensible thing that Obamacare had, but you have these experts who say, all right, these treatments are not cost-effective and therefore they won't be done. That's sort of an un-American thing, but that's one direction you can go. And the other direction is you can put uh, more of the burden of people to pay for their services. So you have high, very high deductible uh, health insurance plans, and people just are going to face up that they're spending a lot of their own money, and so they, they better be show some discretion and ask some questions about costs and benefits of alternative treatments and diagnostic procedures. Again, people are not, they really resent that. Nobody likes a high deductible policy. Everyone thinks that Good health insurance is something that pays that we hardly pay for anything out of pocket. I think that's not really insurance. That gets back to this, you know, suppose you had blue, instead of Blue Cross, you had Blue Eats. Uh, so you paid a few hundred dollars a month and then you were, uh, you could eat, you know, anything, you know, you could eat everything and that, you know, the Blue Eats would your Blue Eats policy would pay for uh, all the food you eat. Well, you, there would be a lot more food consumption in this country if we were all on Blue Eats. You know, we would we would consume very expensive food, probably consume more food. So that's what you get kind of with Blue Cross health insurance. People don't pay attention to cost. Uh, people don't try to weigh costs and benefits or whatever. So the, the the direction to go would be to have more high deductible policies. So that would be the so I call that the right turn because that's sort of a more market oriented right wing approach. And the left turn would be this government rationing, which is what we'll inevitably get if we get anything like Medicare for all or single payer. Government will have absolutely no choice but to impose restrictions on what people what kind of medical care people get. Any country that operates with single payer has the government engaged in those kinds of restrictions. And that's just, you know, that, that's, that's the left turn. Those are the only two ways you can go to try to, you know, uh, deal with the cost spiral of uh, healthcare.
Right. Is there any country that you particularly admire that does this really well? I Well, if you're going to do the right turn, you want to do it Singapore's way, which is, uh, I think they require everyone to get health insurance, but they have, I think, pretty high deductible policies, and they have all sorts of savings accounts that can that can they can then use to pay for health care. So there's just a lot of pressure on people to save, and then there's a lot of you know, people who are supposed to, in, in some sense, ration themselves in their uh, health care spending. So Singapore probably has the system that's best in terms of the right turn. In terms of the left turn, you know, maybe Switzerland. They have this Switzerland is sort of what Obamacare was supposed to be, which was a very competitive health insurance system. But uh, without, I mean, Obamacare is so heavily regulated that in most states, you only have one or two insurance companies that are providing it. And the regulations sort of force you to buy the most expensive, non-economical type of of health insurance. So Obamacare kind of is a failed version of the Swiss system. Uh, and I'm not sure we could ever get the Swiss system to work right here. You know, the, the last episode we, we talked briefly about, you know, and you've written, you, you're not a huge fan of uh, Glenn Wells' book, Radical Markets. And you mentioned it because, you know, you're more on the tradition side than the reason side. But I, in some, I'm curious because in some ways I see sort of UBI as in, in that in that vein and that it is, you know, it's, it's top down and it's sort of uh, first principles. And I guess I'm, I'm curious how you, how you think about that. Uh, and mostly are, are you, are you afraid of a, um, you know, slippery slope uh, effect or, you know, that UBI at a certain, you know, you I think you added a $10,000, but they could, it just could be voted higher or, or unintended consequences that result from that. Oh yeah. I'm def- I, I definitely uh, am worried about that. I think, it would be nice if we could try a useful experiment of a UBI before you kind of jumped into it. It would be difficult to execute that, in part because I think a useful experiment might have to go for 15 or 20 years before you see results. I think it takes a long time for people to really adapt to all the incentive changes that I would assume would come with a UBI. And of course, my assumption is always that the UBI replaces other things, which is very unrealistic from a public choice perspective. I mean, you know, my line is we don't have food stamps because we care about the poor. We have food stamps because farmers have a strong lobby. We don't have housing subsidies because we care about giving people, getting people into homes. We have housing subsidies because we have a strong housing lobby. And I'm assuming you could get rid of food stamps and housing subsidies and replace them with the UBI because to me that's the whole point is to get people off of the high marginal tax rates that come with these uh, food stamps and housing subsidies that just get cut off as soon as you start earning your own income. So my vision of the UBI is you, you have this baseline, but then you earn your own income. And most people do that. And maybe a few people who can't do that, earn their own income, will actually need charity. Because like you say, I'm not going to give a UBI that's enough to just let everyone sit and eat bonbons all day. But I think it takes a long time for the incentive for people to really internalize the, the, the change in incentives that results from that. 
the most UBI experiments last you know a few months, maybe a year. But I think there would be all sorts again in theory, uh, and this is theory, not practice, that you know, there'd be all sorts of responses, including I think a lot more marriage among people among low-skilled workers because under the current system, like I say, if you marry a low-skilled worker, their marginal income to you is, you know, maybe you know ten percent of what they earn because the rest all goes away with lost benefits. So I don't think, you know, in a six-month experiment, you're going to find all of a sudden lots of marriages. But if you had a 15-year experiment with a UBI, I think people would gradually learn through habit that, oh, gee, if I marry this guy, I get a lot more to spend. It doesn't, you know, I, somehow I, I'm living a much better life. So the incentives take a long time to kick in. So long story short, I think you would need, a, ideally, with a UBI, you would have a very long-running experiment, uh, but also an experiment in which you replace the other benefits. And how do you do that? How do you, you know, do that as an experiment you know, on a small sample of people? It's challenging, but you're right. Uh, just jumping into it whole hog is, is not my style. Right. And, and you also wrote a bunch about the, the, what led to the housing crisis. Are, are we in fear um, or at risk for, for something else like that to happen again? Or have the patches been filled or are we just unlikely to happen? I guess I don't foresee the same type of housing thing that, that's just internally generated by what goes on in the housing market. You know, if they're, if some other shock hits the economy, then I think you know that would affect housing. I don't think it has the same internal dynamic problems that it had ten years ago. Because regulation has improved, or hasn't been as bad, or I think there's just less speculation. I, th- I think an underappreciated facet of the financial crisis is that a lot of the people who, a lot of the homes were being bought by people not to live in, but to speculate. And I don't think we have that kind of speculative market going on now. Right. You don't have ordinary people owning three houses because they've discovered that you know housing is going up at some ridiculously high rate and they can flip houses. <laughs> just, we're not in that world. You know, when people sometimes talk about equality of outcome, or sorry, equality of opportunity instead of equality of outcome, uh, it sort of gets confusing because, you know, if the parents get successful, uh, then they, you know, give an inequality of opportunity to their, to their youth. So what do you think is the best way to the extent that equality of opportunity should be a goal or something we, we talk about? What's the best way to sort of measure whether that exists? Well, that's an interesting one. Um, again, I, I, I'm sold that there's a lot more that's innate than what people accept. So I, I think, the, the word, I'll start with sort of how not to do things. If, so if you see any inequality of outcomes and just make a presumption that that is due to inequality of opportunity, I think that's wrong. That's a wrong assumption and that can lead to all sorts of pathological policies and attitudes. I guess one way to look at the question is say, 
what kind of opportunity would you want your own children to have? And what keeps some other children from having that opportunity? So, you know, one thing that comes to mind is uh, schools and vouchers just seem like the best solution for that. You know, not a, not, nothing's going to be a perfect solution. And, you know, two different children given the same school opportunities, you know, one of them's going to do well, one of them maybe isn't. But I think the degree of segregation that we have in school um, is something we should feel uncomfortable about. I mean, the, the ability of affluent parents to, in effect, opt out of the public school system, either by going to neighborhoods with you know, public schools that are private in a, all but name, or by going to private schools, the, the ability to opt out of the typical public school that the affluent parents have is something we should probably feel uncomfortable about. And, and vouchers would get around that? <clears throat> vouchers have the potential to get around that. They might have to be very progressive. That is, you know, a poor fan, you could start out with, you know, $20,000 school voucher for the parents of a uh, you know, low-income family down to zero for high income and see if, uh, if they can end up with approximately the same opportunity in schools. I, I think it's difficult because I think this is something that you know, affluent parents will fight tooth and nail to try to keep their kids in separate, you know, separate class schools. That's, but, uh, some you know maybe some kind of highly progressive voucher system would would overcome that, but certainly the current system you're not going to overcome that. Yeah, let's let, let's close looking forward. Let's so, say uh, you know it's a uh, over a year from now. It, it's towards the end of 2020, and uh, you know Warren has just uh, has just won. <laughs> what are the the biggest implications of a Warren like? presidency uh likely to to be in your view well, obviously you know re, re, uh, i mean the outcomes I, I, obviously you know action serves right you know regulatory environment towards technology and so what else do you suspect that might come from that you know i don't really know who her advisors are or will be and that could make a huge difference jimmy carter was a very different president with alfred Kahn as you know, sort of big economic advisor, he was actually a big deregulator, then he might have and he might have been otherwise. And I, I, I don't know who they are and no one knows who they'll be, let's say, two years from now. We also don't know what the Senate will look like. You have to have a scenario for that. Is is there a democratic Senate and does the and does the Senate presumably there isn't a, a democratic Senate with a two thirds majority and do they just get rid of the filibuster uh, on economic issues, in which case you go, you, know, you could go one direction. You, you, they could do a lot. If they retain the filibuster on economic issues, then maybe things stay more static. I do think that the worst thing that would happen would be the sort of return of a death by a thousand cuts kind of regulation, which is I think what we had in the Obama years, which is why I think the unemployment rate was stayed high for so long. 
and why it came down under Trump is that just being more restrained in terms of regulation just lets just lets lets the economy be more dynamic. I think that that would probably be the worst outcome under a Warren presidency would be a return to death by a thousand cuts regulation that we you know, turn loose the enthusiastic micro regulators. I'm surprised Trump, I mean, well, I guess I'm not that surprised, but it isn't, I don't want to say more popular, but is as hated as he is given how relatively calm things seem to be. Yeah. But, well, you know, part of it is, you know, his personality. He doesn't, he's not a calm person. <laughs> um, and part of it is just the nature of the times and, you know, the divisions that exist in the country. Yeah. And then in closing, what do, what do you, uh, let's say we do another podcast a year from now, what, what are the topics or questions that you expect to be spending much more time on in the next year that you're wrestling with, trying to figure out, write about, et cetera? Do you have um, an upcoming book? I'd like to say that sort of any conversation that I'm in, about the state of things usually comes back to my problems with college administrators not standing up for the values of what we used to call liberal education or intellectual rigor. Again, in this uh, Yuval Levin book that's going to come out, he has this very nice description of of higher education as having three missions. There's a uh, career help mission, you know, get, get, put people on a path to earn more money. I, there's a, a social improvement mission. He points out that colleges have always been these sort of moralizing institutions, you know, starting with the, you know, Harvard and Yale as religious institutions, you know, but pretty consistently. And third is this sort of ideal of liberal education, of learning to think of sort of training our elites to think, you know, to be, to have a good thought process. And I'm afraid what's happened is that the moralizing thing by becoming so reductionist on the oppressor-oppressed theme, so insistent that everything you can explain by by oppressor-oppressed terms means that any time you dissent from one of these social justice act- activists, they're going to insist that all you're doing, that you, you have no basis for what you say, you're just an oppressor, and we have no reason need to listen to you. So, that, so it, it used to be that moralizing was on a separate track from liberal education. Now I think it directly contradicts it because the moral outlook is so reductionist on the reducing everything to oppress or oppressed that it just no longer has an open mind or even tolerates an open mind to go into open inquiry. And the question about what to do about that and how to maintain or restore this spirit of open inquiry is the I think a really important challenge. I think that's what those of us who are intellectuals, really any intellectual, but certainly those of us who are intellectuals who are not on the left, uh, should really be focused on, not even on what's going on in Washington, but what's going on in 
higher education and then to also in like our education schools, our schools of education, which I think are churning out teachers with this anti-intellectual social justice view of the world. It seems in some sense to be getting worse, but it also, the, 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 that also leads to an acknowledgement, a public acknowledgement that it, that's a problem. And so it seems to be increasing awareness of that. I wonder if that will lead to any action because. That's a good question. I mean, you hope that it does, uh, but yeah, it'll be interesting to come back in a year and see where we are on that. Yeah. I look forward to it. Uh, my, my guest today has been Ar- Ar- Arnold Klang. Arnold, thank you so much for, for coming on the podcast. Okay. Thanks, Eric. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst. 